All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, please. First Samuel chapter 1, our text is a little lengthy. It's going to go to chapter 2, verse 11. So we've got a, a chapter and 11 verses. But uh, the message is entitled Hannah, Wife and Mother. Uh, Hannah is an incredible woman, if you've ever read her story, who occupies a small period of time in the history of man, yet by her dependency in the faithfulness of God, she affected the entire nation of Israel through her son Samuel, the prophet, providing important lessons for the future generations of God's people. She was a woman who um, longed for a child and to experience motherhood, but as we'll see, she was barren. What a contrast to so many women of our day who put off motherhood, being sexually permissive and seeking out their personal careers that they might attempt to be equal to a man or feel good about themselves or have some self-worth, failing to recognize the greatest riches of being a wife and a mother, to raise, supervise, and guide the children and meet the need of their husbands. How I thank God for many of you women, that God has um, transformed you as you've trusted Him, as you heard the gospel, and now you live for Him and your godly wife and mother, and what it does to the church, to society, to your neighborhood, to the nation. It's an amazing, amazing wealth. And so I thank you for your obedience and your commitment this day. The story of Hannah is one of obedience and faithfulness to God. Despite the circumstances of life, and it kind of unfolds for us in this text from verse 1 of chapter 1 to 2, 11 in a threefold movement. Bear with me, it's lengthy, but I think it's needful to read it. It says, Now there was a certain man, Aramathaim, Sophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zu, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, and Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship the sacrifice of the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the, two, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Achana to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all the sons and daughters. But to Hannah... He would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely, to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year, um, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then she made a vow and she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your 
maidservant and remember me. And not forget your maid, your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my heart or my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint I and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which uh, you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came uh, to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him up, and he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Um, wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with um, three bowls, an ephod of flour, skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I uh, smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk, um, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumble are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren have borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills, he makes alive, he brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He rises, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ashes heap to set them among princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the, the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven. He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will bring strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah. But the child ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. The story of Hannah unfolds in a threefold movement here. We have Hannah's affliction in verse 1 through 7. Second, we have Hannah's petition in verse 8 through 18. And then we have Hannah's acquisition in verse 19 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 11 of chapter 2. Let's begin here with Hannah's affliction in verse 1 through 7. Notice in verse 1 and 2, the affliction of Hannah was due to her marriage condition. Hannah was um, married to a man named Elkanah. As our text tells us, God has possessed or God has created is what it means. And so a good Jewish name reflecting his creator, the one he worships. And Elkanah was from Ramathim, Zophim, on the mountains of Ephraim. You know that's north. We're going to be there next week. Some of you may go with us and we'll be up there. Um, it literally means the two high places of the watchmen and is believed to be two contiguous hills which uh, watchtowers were built and the watchmen kept continual guard for the safety of the country and afterwards they gave them their name. So it's about five miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now Alcana was son of uh, Jeroham here, the son of Eliu, the son of Tohu, the son of Suv, an Ephraimite. So we get these genealogies all the time to be able to trace certain families, certain lines and all that. To us they mean nothing, but they're very important when God allows them to be recorded. He's an Ephraimite. The Ephraimites were fierce fighting men. Um, they were the first tribe that went astray and they were responsible for the heresy of idolatry also. Now, Notice Hannah was one of two wives in verse 2. The name of the one, Panina, which means coral. Uh, some say pearl or jewel. Um, and she had children, we're going to see. The woman Hannah was the other wife. Her name means grace. Um, gracious gift. And she had no children. Sharp contrast here. Barrenness, as you know, was a mark of shame and a sign of being in disfavor with God in the Old Testament and biblical times. Um, it was a tragedy for all women to be barren because it was the hope of every woman that she might bear the Messiah in the future because she would be born. The Messiah would be born through a Jewish woman. The condition of the two wise notice can only bring affliction to any home. Um, the past history of Sarah, if you remember, and Hagar, Leah, and Rachel, houses full of jealousy, envy, favoritism, um, basic lessons that we should learn from, and how it can be havoc in, in all these conditions that, uh, that for whatever reasons existed back then were, were not the best, that Genesis uh, is the best, uh, one man for one woman. Um, it, it's just the way it is. Now, Hannah lived in the time of the judges, this is where you put her book in, a period about 305 years. The first 12 chapters of 1 Samuel fits in this period up to the reign of the first king of Israel, Saul, 
going from a theocracy to anarchy to a monarchy, and it's a transition. Now, the two common phrases in the book of Judges were this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You find that in Judges 17.6 and 21.25. The other one is every man did what was right in their own eyes. You find them in the same chapter and same verse. They go together. Anarchy. Kind of like our day today. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Laws mean nothing. Courts are corrupted. Policies are made to favor whoever's in power. And it doesn't get better as time moves on. It was a time of moral, religious decay and political chaos resulting in social anarchy. While other women were following the order of the day, Hannah's following the Lord. But it wasn't easy. So put her in the time of anarchy. Everybody's doing what's their own. No morality, no ethics, nothing. And here she is faithful. Ruth, by the way, fits in the same period, the time of Judges. So you always have the obedience in the midst of disobedience, right? Regardless whether it's civil, moral, immoral, chaotic, anarchical, whatever it is. You always have that contrast. Now notice in verse 3 through 5, the condition of Hannah um, would not go away by the favoritism that her husband was giving her. Elkanah went up yearly to Shadow to worship, to sacrifice before the Lord of hosts. Verse 3 says, and that's the, the captain of the armies of, of heaven. We've seen this through the minor prophets, right? Uh, he's the one that fights for Israel, and he's never lost a fight. Uh, the two sons of Eli were there, Hophni and Phinehas. As you know, they were corrupt. They stole sacrifice. They laid with the women in the tabernacle. Um, and yet, here they are, the priests of God. Wow. Elkanah would always give to Penina and her children a portion of, sac- of the sacrifice, verse 4 tells us. And in verse 5, Hannah's portion was always double than Penina's. So, Elkanah demonstrated his favorite uh, position of her as well as his greater love. You see, because it's very hard for a man or a woman to love two at the same time in the same level. You can't do that. One's always going to win out over the other. That's why one man and one woman is what the Bible says. No competition. Simple. He loved her. It's um, unnatural and impossible to love two men at the same time if you're a woman or two women if you're a man. It's impossible. Your heart's divided. She couldn't substitute the double portion for being a mother. Things are things. People are a whole different thing. Look at verse 6 and 7. The condition of Hannah was made worse by Panina's antagonism, ladies. Panina was her rival, it says, which means adversary. Same home, same husband, same family. Panina went out of her way to um, provoke Hannah severely in order to make her miserable, indicating uh, anger and indignation, causing her to rage. Panina's motive was malicious because the Lord had closed up her womb, being unsympathetic and uncompassionate 
knowing she would only humiliate and shame her even more in verse 6. This is the nature of man. We're nice people as long as everything goes our way. But you just give me a little edge. Or you just give me a sense of that I can exalt myself and my sin nature will come alive. Right there. Remember her name, Panina, means jewel, pearl, or coral. True to her name, she was cutting as coral, the product of pain as a pearl, yet having an outward beauty. <laughs> hmm. Do you have a panina in your life, ladies? Then you need to listen to Hannah. Panina provoked Hannah year by year. Verse 7 says that they went up to the house of the Lord. Just the, 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 while you're going up to the Lord, this is all happening. <laughs> she was being attacked spiritually, distracted from being focused on the Lord, first of all. Hannah was afflicted emotionally as she wept. The word wept means to bemoan and bewail and anguish and complain due to the provocation of her adversary for her barrenness. It's a real situation, real blood and guts. What we can understand, and I'll make this point as we move on, intellectually, once we cross that line into personal experience, it's a whole different matter. Now you've got emotions, you've got reality, you've got the consequences, you've got everything flowing. Women are moved and affected more by their emotions than men. As you know, for that reason, the word must be the criteria for a woman's decision-making, as well as a man. But when, ladies, you're moved by your emotions and feelings, you must, you must be obedient to God and subject yourself to the Word of God to make your decisions. Otherwise, your emotions and your uh, feelings will betray you. You'll make the wrong decision. God has made us so different, men and women. Hannah was also affected physically as she did not eat. Notice in verse 7 at the end there. Emotions affect us spiritually in our physical bodies, well, good or bad. Either you're all uptight or you're at peace. Either you're joyous or you're bummed out. That affects us physically. That affects us spiritually. Helen Keller said, quote, I thank God for my handicaps, for through them I have found myself, my work, and my God. Real life, under very, very difficult circumstances, it's God who makes it all possible. Hannah's afflictions cause her much suffering. Notice, secondly, comes Hannah's petition in verse 8, down to 18. In verse 8, the petition of Hannah was in view of her husband being insensitive. Elkanah was completely oblivious to the provocation of Panina towards Hannah, or plain indifferent to it. We don't know. 
And it's evident by the threefold question. Listen carefully, ladies and gentlemen. Elkanah was completely ignorant about the difference between mother's love for a son and for her husband. Am I not better to you than ten sons? I am sure she said under her breath, No, stupid. (laughs) How can you compare them? A love for your children to a love to your husband? Two different loves. They're not in competition. It's just two different loves. Verse 9 through 11, the petition of Hannah was unto the Lord who knows all things. Look at verse 9. She arose after worship and sacrificed it as Eli sat on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle. So here's Eli in the back on the tabernacles put up. There he is. And in verse 10, she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. The priest is there. He's necessary, but she's not worshiping the priest. She's not putting her trust in the priest. She understands what his function is. Her bitterness of soul affecting her emotions caused her feelings to cloud her ability to fix on the Lord. But now being open to the Lord and his will entered into a meaningful interaction with the Lord. Feelings and emotion are legitimate, but they must drive us to the Lord. We have to let the dust settle and know that if we go anywhere else but the Lord with the way we feel and what we're going through, it won't end up good. It just won't. Her prayer refers to intercession to entreat or supplicate. Her prayer was as she wept in anguish, notice that, which means a strong crying and tears very fervently and affectionately. Perhaps about the time of the evening sacrifice, about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, seeing it was after dinner that she arose up and she went and prayed to the house of God. Look at verse 11. She prayed with personal commitment here. Don't miss this. Her prayer was accompanied with a vow to the Lord of hosts. The phrase, again, is the title, the captain of the armies of heaven. So there is no one that can compete with him, no one that can oppose him, nobody that can threaten him. Everyone bows to him. Her prayer was addressed to the only one who could look on the affliction of this his handmaiden and understand and remember her barrenness. Not that he ever forgot about it, but God will use circumstances to bring us to his throne. He will use those things in life that he allows, permits, or even things that we bring into ourselves to drive us to him so that he can direct and guide us and so he can take him for his glory in whichever way he desires. Her prayer was very specific. Notice that God would give her a man-child in verse 11. 
Too often our petitions are too general, shotgun, rather than bullseye prayers. It's easier to be superficial and flaky (laughs) than be specific and committed. Her promise was that she would give him back all the days of his life and no razor would come upon him. Verse 11 at the end there. That means that was a Nazarite vow for life, even to Samson and John the Baptist. You find that Nazareth vow in the book of Numbers chapter 6. Now notice in verse 12 through 18, the petition of Hannah was misunderstood by Eli the priest. Now she's praying to God. Eli the priest is a go-between. God never misunderstands our prayers. Men do. Mark that very well. She was being watched by Eli in verse 12 through 14. And he thought she was drunk because her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out of them. Because she was speaking in her heart. Therefore, he rebuked her, asking her to put away her wine. Interesting. Which um, implies that this was a common thing that the priests had to deal with during this time of anarchy and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. In fact, Eli's very sons do the very same thing while being the go-betweens for the people. Hmm. How interesting that um, Eli could confront and attempt to restrain the people of God but not confront and restrain his own children from laying with the women and causing them to hate and abhor the sacrifice of God. In chapter 2, verse 17, and verse 22, and 3, 1. God help us if we ignore, justify, or cover up, or be plain indifferent to the sins or sinful lifestyle of our children. May we have the courage, commitment of love to confront and restrain them and to bring forth the necessary consequences, Christian parents, before they're adults or before it's too late. Faith for the wounds of a friend, deceit for the wounds of the enemy or the kisses of the enemy, whichever translation you want. Proverbs 27, 6. Chasing your son while there is hope. And do not set your heart on his destruction. Proverbs 19.18 In other words, we have an awesome responsibility as parents to set those lines and to warn of the consequences. And if our children cross them, then we are not to hesitate to bring forth the consequences. It's the stern commitment of your love for them. You're not doing it because they understand it. You're doing it because God commands it. And you understand that it's the right thing to do. And you entrust that child to God. But you do not compromise your obedience to God. Notice 15 and 16. She told Eli her true condition. In 15, Hannah says she was a woman of sorrowful spirit. She didn't know why God had shut up her womb. She wasn't. Understood by her husband. She was being misunderstood now by Eli, the priest of God. And then notice Hannah says she was not drunk with wine or intoxicating drink. 
And verse 15 still, the act of irreverence towards God. Worthy of punishment as Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered strange fire after drinking some wine before the first sacrifice in Leviticus 10. God struck them dead. Then notice, still in 15, Hannah says she had poured out her soul before the Lord. Not just an emotional release, but a total emptying of self to purpose and desire only what that which is going to glorify the Lord. An emotional experience that brings about true change is legitimate. An experience of emotionalism that results in no true change is deception and worthless. It means nothing. You can cry. You can wail. But there is no change. It's worthless. It means nothing. You see, prayer is to align our life with the will of God that the purposes of God can be accomplished in us. And through us, not for our own will, benefit, or glory, but His. Notice in 16, Hannah told Eli not to think of her as a woman of Belial, Satan, the devil. <laughs> but a woman who out of the abundance of her complaint and grief had spoken to God. You see, she received Eli's blessing after he was corrected. By God's grace, though he was at fault against his children and against God, at least he listened here. Eli proclaimed God's peace over her notice in verse 17, and that her petition might be granted. It was not a promise that it would come to pass, but just a blessing that it might be granted. God is sovereign. It wasn't an absolute promise. Hannah left with her face no longer sad. Look at 18. This is truly the work of God by His Spirit, for her circumstances had not changed at all. What had changed? Listen carefully. Her heart. All that had changed was her heart. The conditions had not changed at this point. They're absolutely the same. Abraham Lincoln said, I remember my mother's prayers. And they have followed me. They have clung to me all my life. All that I am and hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. End of quote. It was said of um, Hudson Taylor's mother, that her closed door in the middle of the busy day had a whirl of meaning to the household. There as she's on her knees praying for her son, her family, and all. See, Hannah's afflictions drove her to a position that aligned her with the will and the purposes of God. Third comes the um, acquisition of Hannah in verse 19 of chapter 1 to the 11th verse of chapter 2. 
Look at verse 19 through 28. Hannah experienced conception now. She and her husband arose and um, worshipped early in the morning and returned home. Verse 19 tells us of chapter 1. She was known by her husband sexually and the Lord and uh, remembered Hannah. Um, she conceived. She named him Samuel due to the fact that she had asked him of the Lord. His name means heard of the Lord. Samuel, it's a great name. Samuel would know all his life that he was a direct answer to prayer and that the glory belonged to God alone. I am positive that Hannah rehearsed it over and over and over again. Samuel knew that he should have never been and perhaps would have never been if it wasn't for that intercession, for that drawing to God under the very difficult circumstances. I remember when Samuel was rejected by the people. They were asking a king like all the other nations in 1 Samuel twelve twenty three, And um, they said, um, Samuel, don't stop praying for us. Listen to his words. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and cease praying for you. Wow. Samuel understood his position. Faithful to God. Notice verse 21 through 23. She did not go up to Shiloh again with her husband until the weaning of Samuel now. Elkanah in verse 21 and his entire house went up to offer Shiloh yearly. But Hannah ministered to the child in verse 22 about three years before taking him to Shiloh. Hannah knew that um, he would appear before the Lord forever. That was her vow. Weaning was at the end of 22 to 24 months, we're told by some. Others say it's three years old before being weaned, at times longer, um, which very probably was the case here. Hannah was true to her name, Grace or uh, uh, Gracious, a perfect picture of her person withholding nothing uh, from the Lord that she had vowed. Remember in the Old Testament, God didn't require vows. But if you make a vow, keep it, she said. Don't make vows. I don't require vows. But if you make a vow, make sure you keep it. It's real simple. Now, look at 23. Hannah's husband says something to her. Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord, Yahweh, establish his word. In other words... She understands her vow commitment to the Lord. Elkanah, as the head of the home, is conceding to this, again being aware that everything is to be done according to the Lord. So God is directing all this. God is dealing with them. This went beyond, I think, normal spiritual care of, that's called in Deuteronomy to prepare uh, to be prepared by the hand of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, the duties of parents uh, to train their children in the Lord. I think it went beyond this. For he was uh, not only to be the last judge of Israel, 
but the first prophet of the many to counsel and aid kings. 24 to 28, notice she kept her vow to the Lord. Hannah went up to Shiloh in 24 with Samuel after she weaned him and presented him to the Lord in sacrifice. It's a joyous time. Hannah then presented Samuel to Eli after the sacrifice in verse 25. You see, Hannah reminded Eli of that day when she came to him in verse 26 down to 28. Notice, she reminds Eli of her prayer and her vow that she would lend Samuel to the Lord as long as he lived. Hannah and Eli worshiped the Lord, it tells us, together. Verse 28. Now, we see that the purposes of God were accomplished. He needed a man to judge over his people during this critical period of transition between anarchy and monarchy. And as eyes were looking to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him... And he used a woman to get a man. God's on the throne, right? <laughs> Romans eight twenty eight says, And we know that all things work together for good to them, to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't happen automatically. There's our obedience, our drawn eye to God. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, and says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. We had a retreat based on that theme probably 30 years ago up at Twin Peaks. Out of this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Because so often we look at our circumstance and it's so desperately dark that we say nothing good can come of this. What is God trying to do? Destroy me? Why am I the only one? First thing you need to know, you're not the only one. That's the very first thing you need to understand. <laughs> Second, he doesn't want to make you miserable. He just wants to make you more like him. The reason we're miserable is because we, we want to be like us. That's why. Where God's workmanship is handiwork in Christ Jesus unto good works created beforehand that we might walk in them. Doesn't say we will, that we might walk in them, Ephesians two ten. When you come to chapter two, verse one through eleven, now Hannah expressed adoration. In verse one, her joy was Centered on the Lord, not her situation any longer. Take note of that. She had come to this place even before she was granted her petition back in verse 18 of chapter 1. The heart had changed. Her awareness to God's uniqueness is marked in verse 2. In this adoration of praise. Kind of like... A, the Magnificate of Mary when she worships the Lord and acknowledges her sinfulness and her need of a Savior. 
Verse 2, her awareness of God unique is holy. None besides him or like him was acknowledged. In verse 3, her exaltation of God's knowledge of man's inner thoughts and actions reproved the proud in heart. 4 and 5, her recognition of God's ability to destroy the mighty and strengthen the weak and to cause the barren to bear children is stated. (laughs) Verse 6 through 10, her proclamation of God's sovereignty His ability to put down the proud, exalt the humble, strengthen the king was declared. In verse 11, her commitment was fulfilled as the child Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest and they went home. Wow. Job, in the Bible like Hannah, Acquired from the Lord more than he had at first. But not as a reward, but as God's love, knowing that they were content with the will of God and open to the purposes of God. That's the key. It's not the things or the amount of things that make us happy. It's our commitment to the purpose and will of God that then we can enjoy the things he entrusts to us. There's a big difference. Job told his wife one day when she said, why don't you just curse God and die? He says, oh foolish woman, should I receive good at the hand of God and not evil? Mom's perspective. Job said, even though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. These are real people have suffered real situations. Some that beyond our understanding how they can, but if we remember, it's because of God and because of the Word of God. Hannah's um, acquisition from God was abundant, absolutely abundant. Let me leave you with some lessons from Hannah here. First, Hannah reap to what she has sown by being in a multiple marriage. Lessons for us. We find this in chapter 1, verse 2 and 6. If Panina was Elkanah's first wife, she probably thought it wouldn't be that bad and that she'd be able to handle it. So is the case with some Christians who get involved in certain relationships neatly processed in their mind. But once they're in it, it's a whole different matter. Now it's blood and guts. We live in a day that's far different from past generations, ladies and gentlemen. We shouldn't ignore it. And we should call attention to those who are young and who are going to be married. There are more blended families than natural families perhaps today. I'm not sure, but the way I've seen it transcend through the years. And there are natural problems that come through those things like that that seem to be at first not non-pragmatic, if you will. (laughs) But they are once you cross the line. You need to understand that if you marry somebody who's been married before, you've got the third wheel until 18 if there's children. 
You need to understand that in reality and what that means. The stepchildren, they're your children if you marry that woman or that man. You cannot say your children, my children, our children. God forbid that you should be unequally yoked. Now you really have jumped into the fire. And it happens all the time with Christians. What I'm talking about is not something hypothetical. Because they make decisions based on emotions and circumstance. And like two little puppies, they're all happy. They can't even foresee, oh, I would never do that. I would never think that. Shut up. Are you kidding me? And then uh, two more lives are destroyed. If Elkanah married Panina after Hannah, even with her consent, let's say, due to not being able to have children, then he is at, at fault for her injury. But she reaped as Sarah and Hagar, thinking she could handle it. Whatever we can neatly packaged is different from crossing that line. Let me give you an example. Someone comes to you and they give you a set scenario and they're asking you to counsel them. And you know the word of God. Boom, boom, boom. The word says this, this. Boom, 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 boom. Doesn't, doesn't affect you emotionally. Doesn't make your gut turn. Doesn't make your heart skip a beat. But then you find yourself in the same circumstance and they give you the same counsel. Now it's a whole different thing. Because now you've crossed that line. You, you've jumped off the building. You're in reality now. These are real things, ladies and gentlemen, real life. Again, God is able if we are willing. So the failure is not in God. The impossibility or inability is not in God, but in man. It's always on us. Secondly, Hannah finally went to the Creator, notice, with her problem, with the right attitude and for God's purposes. So she entered into a fellowship that changed her heart, which ultimately affected her countenance. In chapter 1, verse 18, when you have Panina, in your life, you can go to everyone or you can go to God. Shortcuts to God. Adversaries are people who um, provoke you. And you can do one of two things. They will cause you to sin or they will cause you to run to God the strong tower and fortress. One of the two. Thirdly, Hannah's experience, she experienced reality based on God's word, not her emotions. It continued from day to day. We find this in verse 18 of chapter 1. The countenance of her face was no longer sad. 
in 19, as we follow through, we'll see the changes also. And the idea of worship is to give the proper adoration um, to the superior before you by prostrating oneself to do reverence, being aware of one's unworthiness and inferiority before God, the privilege we have to go before Him, knowing that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. The vow was fulfilled, accomplishing God's will regarding the need of a man, verse 28 tells us, chapter 1. God was, God was needing a man to take the place of these corrupt priests and prophets. Look at the fourth thing we learn from her in chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah learned to rejoice in the Lord, not in her situation or circumstance. Her joy was in the Lord. Her strength was from the Lord. Her sacrifice was of love, able to give up even the dearest thing to her, knowing it was the purpose of God. She counted the cost of staying home. Chapter 1, verse 22. There's always a price we pay, ladies and gentlemen. When we obey God, there's a cost. When we disobey God, it's a greater cost. Always greater. On the bad side. Fifthly, Hannah was a mother who turned out a prophet and reaped the fruit from her obedience to God in the years to come. You find this in chapter 2, though we didn't cover them. It's from verse 18 to 21. In 18, she saw her son serving the Lord as priest and prophet. Ladies, you never know what God has in mind for your children. You are being used by God to mold, shape, and prepare them for the will and purposes of God. Somebody gave birth to King David. Somebody gave birth to Jesus Christ. Somebody gave birth to Finney, to Weefield, to Wesley. To Billy Graham, to Chuck Smith, mothers, molding, shaping, praying, day in, day out, washing clothes, making beds, feeding them, cleaning them, driving them, supervising them. Hmm. Verse 19 of chapter 2, she continued to visit yearly by providing a new robe and instruct her child. In verse 20, she was acknowledged by Eli as a godly mother and received blessings for the loan of Samuel. In 21 of chapter 2, she was blessed with more children. She had three sons and two daughters. Wow. I don't know if you've ever heard of Susanna Wesley, the wife of 
of a pastor and mother of 19 children and has gone down in Christian history as the ideal mother. In spite of poverty, sickness, disappointment, she managed her home well. She early drew up for herself some rules and observed them. Now, before I even give them out to you, you're going to say, oh, it's not today. Listen to me. Don't say that. I'm not telling you to be just like her. I'm telling you that the generation, the circumstance, doesn't matter. We're looking at a period of anarchy, complete moral, ethical, and political breakdown. And she's been a godly woman. Listen to Susanna. No child was to be given anything because he cried for it. If a child wanted to cry, cry softly, she said. In her house was rarely heard loud cries by children. How many kids did you say they had? 19? Two, no eating and drinking between meals except when sick. Third, sleeping was also regulated. When very small, a child was given three hours in the morning, three in the afternoon. This was shortened until there was no sleep allowed during the daytime. Four, punctually, the little ones were laid in the cradle and rocked to sleep. At 7 p.m., each child was put to bed. At 8 p.m., she left the room. She never allowed herself to sit by the bed until the child fell asleep. Fifth, the little ones had their own table near the main table. When they could handle forks and knives, they were promoted to the family table. Six, each child must eat and drink everything before him. Novel. They couldn't turn their nose up. They don't like. Eat it. Children must address each other as sister, whatever it was, and brother, whatever it was. Respect. Eighth, she never allowed herself to show through her ill temper or be scolding. She would always explain and explain and explain. This, then when John Wesley was in college, besides this, he wrote asking his mother what books he read, or he should read, literally. Her recommendation and recommendation influenced his life. John Wesley, through the methodical study and practice of the scriptures, as you know, was used of God to teach and reach multitudes in the Methodist church, was born. They call them Methodists because they gathered together to study God's word, to pray, to confess their sins, and to visit the sick and the orphan in the prisons. That's why they're called Methodists. Very methodical. These are um, simple but important lessons 
from studying Hannah. And they will pay great dividends. But it's beyond feelings or emotions. It has to do everything with obedience and trust in God. Years go by very fast, ladies. Before you know, your children are gone. From birth to 8, 9, and 10, it seems an eternity. It goes by too fast. So the story of Hannah that unfolded for us in these three movements is certainly great in giving us lessons of God's sovereignty, his wisdom and faithfulness on one side. But equally on the other side, lessons on the obedience and commitment of each of us to the purpose and the will of God. Hannah's affliction was caused, it caused her much suffering. There's no getting around it. Hannah's afflictions drove her to a petition that aligned her with the will and purposes of God. And Hannah's acquisition from God was abundant. Given Samuel and other children. All this is no accident. All of this is recorded for your learning and mine. That our eyes would be upon the Lord and we will walk with him. And so ladies, I commend you for being godly mothers and wives. Your children are your greatest investment in life. They are the highest dividends paid. Not the stock market. Not your home. Not the car you drive. Not the clothes you wear. Not the jewelry you have. But your children. Children are not looked as an asset today by the world. They're a liability. That's why we kill them in the womb. Simple. God is so good to us. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And thank you for these ladies. Pray your hand be upon them, Lord. Thank you for just their sacrifice, their obedience. Lord, the difficult things they go through, and yet they go to you, and you do such an incredible work through them, Lord. We thank you for them. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to call upon his name. He died for you, that he might forgive you and give you a new heart that you may be able to be pleasing to God. He may live through you. It's called repentance. Maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit, you can do that right now. This is your prayer to him. Realizing that Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, and that he alone can bring you to God the Father by forgiving you of your sins. You can repeat this prayer if you want. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.